So let me read this for us. In verse 1, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things." So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge, that you may filled, be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we may ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time and his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. And God, it's not easy for us to understand. There are difficulties in these verses that we're studying. But we know that it is your word and you desire us to understand it. And you desire us for us to apply it to our lives. So I pray that you would reveal your truth to us this morning. We know that it's only through your Holy Spirit. We know that it's only through the power of the Spirit that we can understand God's word. So we pray that the spirit would be at work in us as we study this passage. God, may we understand the mystery that has been given to us. And may we apply it to our lives. And more than that, may we even just be able to celebrate it here as a church this morning. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. What comes to your mind when you think of a mystery? Right now, my wife and I sometimes enjoy reading a mystery novel or watching a mystery series on the television. And what happens when you're watching a series that's about a mystery, you just want to keep watching the next episode. If you've already watched one or two episodes, you get to the time when you know you should go to bed, and you just they leave you on a cliffhanger, and they just reveal something to you, and you think, what's another 30 to 45 minutes going to be if I stay up and watch the rest of it? So we really enjoy getting into some mystery novels and shows. And what's interesting about a mystery is usually there's some plot twists, some things that happen that are unexpected. 
And there's always that big reveal at the end of the show or the book that shows you what has happened, that reveals all the missing parts, and you can put it together for yourself. Now, last year when my wife and I were engaged, we had our own little mystery. We were getting some wedding gifts, some things that were on our registry, and most of the wedding gifts we got were at different showers that we went to. The church here hosted a shower. Some of our families had wedding showers, and so you could see the person that was giving you a gift. Some people, though, got on our wedding website and they sent us gifts through that website. And usually there would be a little note that said, you know, to Lance and Alicia from so-and-so. That way we could give them a thank you card. There was one gift in particular, a gift that I was really anxious about and wanted, that was given to us, but there was no note. And I mean, I searched through all of the box, all of the different parts, and I could not find a note anywhere. And what I didn't want to happen was... I got three, four, five years down the road and someone said, did you ever get that gift that I sent you? And I said, yes. And they're like, well, why don't you send me a thank you card and have that kind of friction in our relationship. So we endeavored to start searching who would have given us this gift. And we called people that we thought might have done it. And we looked on Amazon to try to see who gave it to us. Finally, after a couple days of searching, we found out one of my friends had sent it to me but they purposely were trying to remain anonymous, so they erased all digital footprints of how they sent it to us. What they didn't realize is we're pretty determined, and we were gonna find out who sent it to us anyways, because they were gonna get that thank you note. So that was our own little mystery. The dictionary, Webster's Dictionary, defines a mystery as something that is not fully understood or beyond our understanding. When you read a mystery novel, you don't understand immediately from the beginning what's going on because all of the different pieces have not been revealed yet. There's some kind of unexplainable or secretive quality to a mystery. And in Paul's writing, he loves using the word mystery to describe the gospel. Because what's so interesting about the gospel is that it is so simple that a child can understand the gospel. You know, a child can understand who Christ was, how they're sinful, how he died for their sins, how they can have a relationship with him. Yet, there is still something about the gospel that is mysterious. And in Paul's text this morning in chapter 3, Paul is going to call this the mystery of the gospel. And this is an incredibly loaded term that Paul uses to describe what is going on here in the Ephesians' lives, especially when it comes to the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, we need to think about where we've been. If you go back to chapter 2, Paul is going to take the whole chapter to describe our salvation, how we've been saved by grace through faith. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he's going to talk about that personally, how you and I were dead in trespasses and sins, how we've been made alive in Christ, and it's all by grace that we've been saved through faith. So that what? So that we can be his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work. So that's just talking about you and I as individuals. In verses 11 through 22, a couple weeks ago, we saw that Paul's focused on us as a church, on us as a corporate body, not just a local church, but the universal church and what God has done through Christ in us. And it's a word that is described there as reconciliation. To reconcile someone is to take two sides that are at odds and to make peace between them. And that's what Christ did. We were enemies of God because of our sin. Christ came and he brought peace. 
And so that gives us not only unity with ourselves and God, but unity as the body of Christ. Now, as we get to chapter 3 of Ephesians, I want to tell you where Paul is going. And this is why I read all of chapter 3 for us. What Paul wants to do is he wants to pray for the Ephesians. Where he's going to go is in verse 14, where it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. The problem is that Paul gets a little sidetracked on his way to get there. You see in verse 1, he says, For this reason... And he's about to pray there, but he doesn't begin his prayer yet. He gets off, and I wouldn't call it a rabbit trail, because I think he meant to go in this direction. But he realizes there's something else that he wants to explain to the Ephesians. There's something else that has captivated his attention that he desperately wants them to understand. And that is the mystery. The mystery of the gospel and how it applies to their lives. Paul wants to pray for them to have spiritual strength. Before he does this, he wants to explain the mystery. So we're only going to look at the first six verses. It's verses 1 through 13. That is this sidetrack that Paul gets on. And we'll look at those over the next two weeks. But this morning, we want to take a deep look at this passage and recognize that this mystery of the gospel is not just something that we study. It's not just something that we try to find truth from. It is something we want to celebrate why I had to sing the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It's one of our favorite songs here. What I love about that song is you're not just talking about the mystery. You're not just thinking about the mystery. You are celebrating the mystery of the gospel. And so this morning, we want to celebrate the mystery of the gospel and look at three different ways that we can do that as a church. If you look at verses one and two with me, we're going to first of all celebrate God's mysterious plan. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is going to begin discussing this plan with the Ephesians. So in verse 1, he begins by saying, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. For this reason shows us that he started a new section. What is the reason? What is he trying to transition us from? Well, he's talking about our reconciliation through Christ, how we've been saved by grace through faith, how we now have peace with God. So because you've been saved, because you now have peace with God, Paul wants to pray for them to have spiritual strength. But instead, we see him begin to get sidetracked. He says, I, Paul. Now, this is interesting. Paul uses his personal name here. And why does he do this? Well, it's because he had a close relationship with them. They already knew that it was Paul writing the letter, but he wants to implore them to understand this mystery. If you remember when we studied the book of Acts several months ago, Paul had a special relationship with the Ephesians. He lived there for three years. He was close with the believers. Many of them he led to the Lord. And if you remember in Acts 20, Paul knows he needs to go to Jerusalem Paul knows he needs to say goodbye to the Ephesians, but he does not go back to Ephesus. And why does he not go back to Ephesus? Because he knows if I go back there, I'm never going to be able to leave. And so he calls for the Ephesian elders to meet him in a separate town called Miletus so that he can give them some final instructions because he can't bear to be with the people anymore because he so desperately loves them. And if you remember Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders at the end of Acts 20, 
They end that session by crying on the beach and embracing each other, showing that love that they had for one another as believers. So Paul had an incredibly close relationship with the Ephesian church. In fact, I would argue it might be the closest relationship that he had with any of the churches he writed to, that wrote to. That's just my opinion. So Paul refers to himself as what? As a prisoner. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. We know that he was in prison while he's writing this letter. This is called a prison epistle. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, they were all written by Paul during his imprisonment. Now, he was in prison two different times, once in Caesarea, and then he eventually did go to Rome, and he was imprisoned during that time as well. We don't know exactly when he wrote this letter, but we know that Paul wrote this letter while he was a prisoner for the Lord. So he's talking about his own circumstances. He says, I'm writing this to you, and I've been thrown in prison But notice what he says. He says, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of Caesarea. I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. Who is he a prisoner of? A prisoner for Christ Jesus. His obligation is not just to his country. It is to God. Paul is a prisoner for God. He is serving the Lord while in prison. And he's there. It says, on behalf of you Gentiles. Why was Paul thrown in prison? He was preaching the gospel. But it wasn't just that he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And the Jews didn't like that he was preaching the gospel. They especially did not want him preaching the gospel to Gentiles as well. Because of what? What shows that unity that Jews and Gentiles now have as believers. So Paul is in prison for these people Because he wants them to understand the gospel, to be strengthened spiritually. And he wants to pray for these Ephesians that they would be strengthened and understand truly the redemption that they have in Christ. But as I said, at the end of verse 1, his prayer gets interrupted. As he goes into verse 2, he's going to start explaining to them this mystery of the gospel. We have to ask ourselves, why does Paul get off track? Why does he just not launch into the prayer like he seems to want to? Have you ever seen someone who maybe gets off track while they're speaking or while they're teaching? We had this professor in college. You could always get him off track. In fact, there were some days we would come to class and we'd say, okay, I'm going to ask this question at the beginning of class. And he would just spend the entire class period off on this rabbit trail. and We wouldn't be going down what we needed to talk about for that class. Now, eventually, you had to get back on our discussion because we wouldn't have gotten through the course if we kept doing that. But it was just really funny to see him get off on all of these different rabbit trails. Or maybe there's a professor who's a storyteller, and he tells all these stories that you might have heard several times in his class. Like I said, I don't think this is just a rabbit trail from Paul, but he wants them to understand this mystery. So let's look at it. In verse 2... It says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he says, I'm assuming, and he really does believe this is true, that these Ephesians have heard of this stewardship. The word stewardship that's used here means plan. Tim's Bible said dispensation, which I think is a good word for it. It describes how God has organized, how God has planned out history. All of time, the plan of God is what's being described here. 
And Paul says, I'm assuming you've heard about God's plan. And why does he assume that? Well, Paul was there. He taught them God's word. He taught them this plan of the gospel. And part of God's plan of the gospel was that Paul would be a minister, would be a servant for the Gentiles. He says here it's a stewardship of God's grace. One of the things we need to remember as we talk about the grace of God is that grace does not just refer to God's salvation. God is gracious in every aspect of our lives. If it was not for the grace of God, you and I would not be here this morning, right? If it was not for the grace of God, the first time we sinned, the first time we rebelled against him, we could just be zapped. But by God's grace, we are here in every aspect of our lives. God has been gracious towards us. Now, this word for stewardship or plan, it's not the first time we've seen it in Ephesians. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul is focused on this plan in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and in chapter 3. He wants them to understand how God is working in their lives through this plan. This plan is bigger than just our lives This plan stretches out to the entire church, to the entire universe. And this plan, like I said, is it's a word that's used to describe someone who manages a household, someone who is in charge, who has this stewardship. Now, I lived in a family. I had three or two brothers, one sister, and then I had parents as well. And we went through a lot of groceries. In fact, we went through so much milk, we would just buy it several gallons at a time because we'd go through just a lot of milk throughout the week. When I moved out of my parents' house and I was single, I was surprised at how much less my grocery bill was. And why is that? Well, I'm buying for one person. It takes a lot less work to buy for myself when I was single than it did when I was living at home and there's six people total in the house. I didn't have to plan too much for meals. I'd just go to the grocery store and I could get out of there pretty cheap compared to what it was like being part of a family. Then what happened? Well, I got a dog and you know, you're supposed to feed your dog and make sure he has food and treats and things like that. And I realized it's expensive to have a dog. And then I got married and now Alicia helps me remember the parts of the plan that I forget. And now we have two dogs. And so we have to buy things for both dogs as well. What it illustrates is that as your house gets bigger, You have more people to buy for. It takes a lot more to manage your household. I don't know what it would be like to live in a house where people had six kids, eight kids, 10 kids, 19 kids and counting. That would be a lot to try to manage that household. And that's the idea behind this word that's used here. It's someone who is in charge, who is a steward, who is managing the household. And this is what's referred to as God's plan for the universe. He's in charge. He is managing the universe. And part of his plan is this gospel. This last phrase used here at the end of verse 2, it says, that was given to me for you, shows us how Paul is part of this plan. Remember, Paul didn't just grow up as a Christian. He grew up opposing Christianity and the gospel. He murdered Christians. He threw them in prison. He was zealously persecuting them. He blasphemed Christ. So he didn't just wake up one day and decide to change sides. He had this dramatic Damascus Road conversion 
And even all the way back to Acts chapter 9, where, the Lord, where Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus and then takes him to Ananias' house, Paul is told at that point that he would be a servant of God to the Gentiles. So, so throughout Paul's life, you can see what? God's plan, how God would use Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to go to all these different towns and plant churches, to write most of the New Testament. And I would argue that if it was not for Paul, most of us in this room would not understand the gospel. Think about this. When you were saved, how many verses came from the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, all the different New Testament letters that Paul wrote explaining to us the gospel of God? But he doesn't just want to show us that Paul's part of this plan. He wants to also show us that Paul's part of this plan because of God's grace. God didn't have to use Paul. He could have used someone else. He didn't need Paul as to be part of this plan. But by God's grace, he used Paul in the Ephesians' lives. So this was given to Paul for the Ephesians, for the Gentiles. And all of this illustrates for us the mysterious plan of God. This plan not only includes Paul and the Ephesians, but it includes you and me as well. Think about the gospel for a moment and how much of it is mysterious to us. You have the Son of God coming to earth and taking on human flesh. He didn't have to become like you and I did, but he willingly and humbly obeyed the will of the Father so that he could offer us salvation. Jesus lived a real human life. Sometimes we think he just ran around like Superman doing whatever he wanted to. No, those who knew Jesus as a child said, well, this couldn't be the Messiah. He just looks like you and I do. I've never really seen him do anything that was miraculous until his adult ministry. So the plan of God is mysterious. It involved God using a virgin to conceive and bear a son. That son dying on the cross for our sins. And his plan today sometimes doesn't always make sense for us. Even after we're saved, God puts trials into our lives. In fact, I would almost argue that the trials and suffering that God puts in our lives are how he most helps us become more like Christ. It's all throughout the New Testament. The work that God is doing in you includes suffering, includes things that we don't want to go through. And it's part of God's mysterious plan. And while we don't understand the mysterious plan of God, we know that his plan is not just good, it's perfect. And it's what he's called us to be part of. We may not always understand God's plan. He may not always give us what we want. But we know that our confidence does not come from getting what we want. Our confidence comes from God and trusting in his word. So this morning, celebrate the mysterious plan of God. Celebrate the fact that you don't have to wonder one day, does God know what he's doing? Is God really in control? You can trust that God's plan is perfect. You can celebrate what he has already done. This doctrine does not just deserve to be read about or studied. It deserves to be celebrated by us. So we want to celebrate God's mysterious plan. Secondly, we want to celebrate God's mysterious revelation. We're going to see this in verses 3 through 5. In verse 3 it says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Paul uses this word mystery here. It comes from the Greek word mysterion, which is where we get our word for mystery. 
And it refers to a mystery that is beyond our understanding, beyond our capacity. The root of it literally means to be quiet, to keep your lips sealed, to not blab to someone what is going on. Now, Paul's taken a little bit of a rabbit trail in this passage. I'm going to take us on a little bit of a rabbit trail to understand how this word mystery is used in Scripture. So we're going to go through the Bible a little bit. The Ephesians' understanding of the mystery related to mystery cults or different religions during that time. There were these cults during that age where people were part of this religion and they had mysteries and you could only know the mystery the higher up and the more involved you got into this religion. They didn't just tell you everything up front. You had to rise through the ranks almost to be part and to understand this mystery. And so the Ephesians had this in their mind, as Paul says, mystery. But this was not Paul's understanding of the word mystery in Scripture. And I want us to understand that because sometimes that is infused into this passage. Paul had a very Jewish understanding of how this word mystery is used. And we want to begin by looking at the Old Testament. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 2 for a moment. Now, while the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and some Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek, and you say, well, they're different words. The Old Testament was translated into Greek, and the word used for mystery in Daniel chapter 2 is the word mysterion. So that kind of hints to us that it's the same idea that is being talked about here. Daniel, we know, was a captive from Judah taken to Babylon as a young boy. The king of Babylon during that time was Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and you've probably read about this and studied it on your own. It's this giant statue that's being formed, and it shows God's plan for the earth in the coming ages. But as he is wrestling with this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is confused, and he goes to all his magicians and all of his sorcerers, and he wants them to interpret this dream for him. He wants to understand why he keeps having this dream and what is going on here. And so he finally, no one can explain this to him, and he comes to Daniel. And if you look at verses 27 through 28, as Daniel is about to interpret this dream to the king, I want you to see who he gives credit to. In verse 27, it says, Now Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals what? Mysteries. And has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So what is Daniel showing us about this word mystery? It's something not revealed to us. It's something hidden. That's a secret. But who reveals mysteries? It's God. God is the one who reveals mysteries to us for us to understand. Keep that in mind as we keep going. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. This word is used not only in Paul's writing, and it's mainly used in Paul's writing. It's also used in the Gospels as well. When you get to Matthew chapter 12... I think you start seeing a little bit of a distinct break in Christ's teaching. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees accuse Christ of healing someone in the power of Satan. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus then, after that happens, makes a 
definitive difference in his ministry. He stops focusing on his public ministry. He starts focusing on his ministry to the disciples. And so in chapter 13, we see him do something interesting. He begins to speak in parables. And parables are just stories about common household objects, things that everyone understood, but they had deeper meaning. And to be able to understand a parable, you needed to have it explained to you by the one who was given the parable. And so the disciples knew what Christ was doing, and that's something I want us to understand. We've been going through Ezekiel and Thursday Bible study, and something interesting about Ezekiel is that it's it has some parables in it. So it's not just something new in Matthew. It's actually in the Old Testament as well. So after this first parable, in verse 10 of chapter 13, the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know what? The secrets, which is also what? Mysterion, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, But to them, it has not been given. So what do we learn about mystery here? It's something hidden. It's a secret that human mind cannot understand who reveals the mystery. It's God. God is the one who reveals this mystery and gives it to us to understand. Finally, we come back to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uses this word again, and he describes the mystery of the gospel the mystery of the gospel if you look back in chapter 1 in verse 9 making known to us what the mystery of his will according to his purpose again mystery is something we can't understand it's a secret who reveals the mystery to us it's god and here it's god through his son jesus christ mystery is used six times in ephesians once in chapter 1 Three times in chapter 3, if you skip ahead to chapter 5, it's interesting at the end of chapter 5, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is what? A mystery. Now why does he say this is a mystery? It's not just that men and women get married. That much has been very clear throughout all of Scripture. It's a mystery that they become one flesh. And what's even more of a mystery is how God makes his church one flesh through Christ. Then at the end of chapter 6, in verse 19, Paul asks for prayer. And he says, And also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This mystery, again, is revealed by God. It's proclaimed by Paul. But it's used especially in chapter 3, to describe the gospel of God, this mysterious gospel. And this is not something Paul grew up understanding. It had to be revealed to him. And in fact, it says, which was made known to me by revelation. Every time you have a mystery, it needs to be explained to someone. That process is called revelation. It has to be revealed to someone. A couple years ago, I was an English teacher at a Christian school, and I had an essay contest. Now, like I said, I'm into mystery novels. I'm into plot twists. And I said, whoever can write for me the best plot twist essay will get a candy bar. Now, I was just going to go buy a candy bar from a gas station on my way to the school that day. But I was amazed at the effort that these kids put into this project. 
Some students were really good writers, and so they just enjoyed the process of writing this mystery essay for me. Some students had really given no thought to writing before, but they said, I really want that candy bar. And so they put a lot of effort into writing this mystery essay. One student really wanted to get the candy bar, but he knew he wasn't a good writer. So he just wrote about the plot of one of the Batman movies and put it into his essay. And then as I was reading it, I thought, I've heard this story before. It's actually a movie and it was made about 10 years ago. As I was reading through these essays, there was one student story that really stood out to me. I knew it was original. I knew it was his work. And it went back and forth. There were all these plot twists and just some shocking things happen in the story. And you get to the end. And what happens at the end of a mystery story? You find out. It's revealed to you. You get to the ending. And I'm getting to the part where it's supposed to end. And I think, well, I'm running out of pages. This is going to end pretty quick. And he doesn't tell me the ending. And I was so mad. I was sitting in my apartment and my, my dog can even, he's pacing around because he's looking at me. He's like, why are you so upset? And I'm like, because this student didn't write the ending of his essay. He used a cliffhanger. So I go to school that day and I pull him aside and I said, I have to know, how does the story end? And he said something even more frustrating. He said, I don't know. I just was throwing you for a loop. I was just leading you along. He said, did I win? I said, no, you did not win. <laughs> and even though it might have been the best essay that was written for me, he made me so upset I gave it to another kid who actually finished his story. But he did a good job of writing his paper. A mystery has to be what? Revealed to someone. There has to be that moment where it is revealed. And it was revealed to Paul. When, when, is it, when was it revealed to Paul? Well, when he was saved, when he was converted. This mystery, as we've seen by looking through Scripture, it's God revealing it to someone. It can't be understood by the human mind. If you remember in Matthew 16, Peter confesses Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood could not reveal this to you. What does that mean? Christ is saying, you weren't smart enough to figure this out on your own. God needed to reveal it to you so that you could understand what's going on. And so this has been revealed to Paul. And then he says this. He says, as I have written briefly. Now, a lot of people comment about this. What does it mean that he's already written about this? Some people think there's another letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians that we just don't have. Now, I don't think that's likely because I think we'd have more evidence than we do for that. Some people think it refers to the book of Colossians. One of the things you have to understand is Ephesians and Colossians are very closely related. Both churches probably got two different letters, one to the Ephesians, one to the Colossians, but they were circulated around the churches in Asia Minor. And they have similar themes. There's similar themes talked about in Colossians as there are in Ephesians. But I don't think it's necessarily referring to another letter. I think he's talking about things that have already been explained in Ephesians, probably in chapter 2. So as he says, as I have written briefly, he's not referring to another letter. He's referring to something he talked about just a few chapters ago or just one chapter ago. In verse 4 it says, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ. So they understood God's plan. They even understood the gospel, but they're still discovering more of this mystery. And this happens as they're reading Paul's 
writings. He says, as you're reading this letter, you're going to perceive my what? My insight. This word is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament as understanding. If you read Proverbs, there's wisdom and then there's understanding. And it's not just a physical understanding. It's an understanding of spiritual truths. He says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, this is really interesting. Paul doesn't just refer to it here as the mystery of the gospel. He refers to it as the mystery of Christ. We're going to come back to this thought here in a couple moments. But we want to understand that Christ is intricately connected to this mystery. It's not just mysterious what God does for us. It's mysterious how Christ is connected to this as well. But I'll come back to that in a few moments. If you look at verse 5, it says, "...which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." This is what makes it a mystery. People previously did not understand it, but now in the New Testament, we can understand it. Who didn't understand it? Well, the Old Testament Jews, people who lived before Christ. They didn't understand the mystery. It was a secret to them. Now, through Christ, through the New Testament, it is what? It has been revealed. It's said by his holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the apostles and the prophets make up the foundation of the church. They are part of the foundation of the church with Christ being the cornerstone. If the apostles and prophets aren't linked to Christ, they can't be the foundation. The building is going to be insecure. So they're part of this foundation. Why? Because they saw Jesus. They were taught by Jesus. And then they began this church whose mission is to proclaim the gospel. They're also part of this foundation because the apostles and prophets wrote what? The New Testament. Part of God's word that is revealed to us. Some of the apostles wrote books of the New Testament. Some of the prophets revealed insights into God's word. So these apostles and prophets here help reveal the mystery, but not just on their own. Not just because they were really lucky. By what? It says by the Spirit. And this is so important for us to understand that none of us, not you, not me as your pastor, could understand God's word if it was not for the Holy Spirit and the illumination that he gives to us. How do we understand God's word? It's through the Spirit which helps us to understand. In 1 Corinthians, why do people think the gospel of God, the word of God, is foolishness? It's because they've not been, their eyes have not been opened. They're still blind to the truths of God's word. So this is revealed by the Spirit of God. When you were an unbeliever, you did not understand God's word. You might have heard stories about God's word that somewhat made sense. You didn't understand how it applied to you. But there was a moment when you were saved where the Spirit began to what? Reveal God's word to you. You understood who God is. You understood who you are. And you accepted Christ as your Savior. The Spirit has a huge role and helping you understand God's word. It's called illumination. And so we praise the Lord this morning that this mystery was revealed to us. I mentioned how the Spirit, when we were unbelievers, revealed God's word to us. We can remember how we used to be in darkness. 
Now, some of us were saved when we were young. We can't really remember what life was like before becoming a Christian. But some of you were saved when you were older. And you say, yes, I can remember what it was like to walk in darkness, to not know the truth of God's word. Do you remember this morning the person who first shared the gospel with you or how you first heard about God's son, Jesus Christ? For me, it was my dad. For you, it might have been someone else. Do you remember hearing about how Jesus loved you and wanted to save you from your sin? We can praise the Lord for our testimony, how the gospel was revealed to us as believers. So we take time today and celebrate these truths. And I'm going to come back to that thought that the mystery is connected to Christ. Think about the song we sang before the sermon. Come behold the wondrous mystery. And what I love about that song is that it not only points us to the gospel, it points us to Jesus. That Jesus is the mystery. The first verse says, Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. Who is the king? It's Jesus. And then it goes on to say, He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. So it shows us this mystery. It's mysterious that Jesus was the king. He was the theme of heaven's praises. Yet what? He took on our flesh. That is the mystery. In verse 2 it says, Come behold the wondrous mystery. He the perfect son of man. Later on it says he's the true and better Adam. Who is the mystery? It's Jesus. And it is Jesus coming to earth to take on our sin. And verse 3, come behold the wondrous mystery. What? Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs a lamb in victory. Showing us the mystery of the gospel. Christ put on the cross for our sin. And then we get to verse 4. And it says, come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by dead, the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. And when we get to that verse, what happens? We don't just monotonely sing it. We don't just forget the words. We shout it and we proclaim it. And why is that? Because the mystery is not just meant to be talked about. It's meant to be celebrated. It is meant to be sang about. And you say, well, I don't sing very good. Well, join the club. None of us do. But we sing the mystery of the gospel because it is a truth worth celebrating. So this morning, remember how this mystery has been revealed to us. Finally, we want to celebrate our mysterious unity. Celebrate our mysterious unity. This is in verse 6. It says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. This shows us the full detail of the mystery. It is Christ, yes. But what was so mysterious about it was that the Gentiles, and this was something people were not expecting. They thought, yes, God's people, the Jews, could be saved. They were not expecting that the Gentiles would be part of God's promise of salvation. It says this mystery is that the Gentiles are what? Fellow heirs. Remember in chapter 2 it talks about their separation. 
how they could not be part of God's people, how they were strangers to Christ and his promises, how they were not sons of God, but they did not know God, a theos. Yet now, what are they? Fellow heirs. That means they're God's sons and daughters. They get God's inheritance. And this inheritance is eternal life. Paul wants to describe this mystery to them to show them what he has done in their lives to take them from strangers and enemies of God to being called God's sons and daughters. Secondly, it says members of the same body. They were once, what? Separated from Israel. Now they've been united in one flesh with God's people. They're no longer strangers and aliens Now they're part of his people, the church. Finally, it says, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In chapter 2, it said they did not understand, they did not know the promises of God, the covenants of God from the Old Testament. Now they're part of this promise in what? Christ Jesus through the gospel. The greatest promise that they could ever be given is to know that their sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ. Christ. So this is the mystery. And this mystery does not just include our salvation. It includes our unity as the body of Christ. How Jews and Gentiles could have completely different backgrounds and be brought together as a church. And for us this morning, even though we don't consider ourselves Jews or Gentiles anymore, we've just got people from Trafalgar and people from Franklin and Martinsville and all over the place. We're brought together. Why? Not because this is a social club. Not because we just all wanted to see each other, although we did. We're brought together because of the gospel. Because of the mystery of God. Because Jesus Christ died for our sins. So we can be called what? His church. His people. And we don't just talk about that. We don't just think about how it applies to our lives. We celebrate our mysterious unity in the gospel. And sometimes we don't always like the people we go to church with and we think, why am I celebrating that? Because of what God has done in us, making us the body of Christ. And this beautiful unity encourages us to love and serve one another in this body. So while Paul won't get to his prayer until verse 14, he's going to take the next several verses and talk about his ministry, how he was brought into this as a servant of God. He desperately wants the Ephesians to understand the mystery of Christ, not just so that they can have this head knowledge, so that they can celebrate the gospel. So as we close this morning, I want us to think about how can we celebrate the mystery of the gospel? How can you and I take time each and every day, not only on Sundays when we meet, not only on Wednesday nights or Thursdays when we fellowship together, but every single day, how can we celebrate the gospel? Number one, repent of sins and trust Christ. You can ultimately celebrate the gospel by making sure you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that your sins have been forgiven That for all of eternity, you will be worshiping with him in heaven. Repent of your sins and trust Christ. Secondly, sing songs that reflect the gospel. 
Sing songs that reflect the gospel. It's one of my passions as we talk about music and as I lead music. I'll never be the world's greatest guitar player or singer, but I do want us to sing songs that reflect the gospel, that tell the gospel story from Christ's birth to our sin, to Christ's death on the cross, to his resurrection, to, our, to his ascension and our eternal hope with God in heaven. So I think the best songs are songs that explain the gospel, that sing the gospel, that have rich truths from God's word. There are so many songs today that may not be bad to listen to on the radio, but they're not really about the gospel. They're not really about our relationship with God. They're just focused on the human experience. One good test to know, hey, should I sing this song in church? If I were singing the song to someone else, would they know it's talking about God? Would they know that it's talking about God's word? Or is it a song that could be sang to a boyfriend or a girlfriend or to someone else? And we really need to think about that because the songs we sing are so important when it comes to our worship of God. So as we think about celebrating the gospel and singing about the gospel, we want to sing songs that reflect God's gospel and help us to worship him as we should. Finally, live a life in service to God. We know from Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul encourages them, he exhorts them to live their lives as a living sacrifice. My Bible says as spiritual, he says this is your spiritual worship. How do we worship God? It's through a life that is lived serving him. I want to bring us back to this thought as we close. Paul is writing this from where? From prison. And as he's writing from prison and he's in chains, he is demonstrating what? A life that is totally sold out to celebrating the gospel and to being a servant of Jesus Christ. And he was willing to do whatever it took to celebrate the gospel and to glorify God through his life. And he didn't even care if that meant going to prison. Now, my encouragement today is not just to do something to go to prison. Okay, that is not what I want us to take from this. But are you committed to the service of God? Is there anything you're holding back from truly doing what he's called you to do and following his will? For Paul, it not only meant imprisonment, it eventually meant his death. But he's willing to do it. Why? Because of his love for the mystery of the gospel. So my prayer for us is that we would understand this mystery, that we would celebrate it as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, how he died for us on the cross, how he was buried and rose again, offering us eternal life. We pray that you would help us to just respond according to your will, that you would help us to understand this mystery as a church, and that we wouldn't just leave this place the same people as we were before, but that we would have a new and renewed passion to serve you as we should. So we ask all this in Christ's name.